0: All right, everybody. Josh Smith here again at my studio live from Flat Five.
1: And my guest today is one of my favorite musicians, just bar none. uh, Mark Goldenberg. I've been a fan a long time. Uh, Just being honest, the first time I heard you was when I saw you play with Jackson Brown. I was a kid. I hadn't moved yet to L.A. And you came and played Sunrise Musical Theater in South Florida. And I saw you play that gig. I'm sure Jeff Young was on the gig too, who would eventually become a great friend that I would play with all the time, but I didn't know him yet either. And man, I was just blown away by your playing and at how you managed to sound like yourself in the midst of some classic songs, which was really inspiring to me as an up and coming musician. Um, for people who don't know you toured with Jackson for a long time, you also have a, a really cool prolific songwriting background. You've written for some, some amazing people have covered your songs. Um, and, You know, you're just a really great musician and guitar player. you studied with Ted Green, too, and I'm, of course, going to ask you about that. But, man, I'm just a huge fan of your musicianship and your guitar playing, and it's a pleasure to have you.
0: Well, thank you so much, and it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, man. So
1: I know you're from Chicago, right? Yes, I am. So when did the guitar get into your hands the first time, and who put it there?
0: My dad. My dad put it in my hands. Uh, my dad was a doctor, and uh, but he was he and my my mom was a, a musician, a classical pianist, and they were both crazy about music, basically classical music, but also some really oddball stuff. Just really like they were into world music before it was a thing, and you know right. like weird classical like, you know I was too young to hear Stockhausen, but they made me hear it. <laughs> wow, and. Uh, so I, I grew up listening to some really weird crap. But <laughs> my dad uh, loved the guitar. He just was really crazy about the sound of it. So he decided he was going to learn how to play the guitar. So he, he 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 looked and he found, like, the best guy in Chicago teaching classical guitar. And this is back in the 60s, right? Mm-hmm. There's a guy named Richard Pick, who uh, was the – he was the, the guru of all classical guitar in Chicago. He had even had his own model of uh, Gibson classical. Wow. Not the words that you hear going together very often. Yeah. So this before, this is before I was in high school. So my dad used to kind of take me with him when he would go downtown to his lessons. And I would sit in the, they had like a, you know, a, an area where the, where the, students would hang out and it was like, you know, it had like Gibson catalogs and uh, uh, some magazines and stuff. So like, I was always like looking at these catalogs and I actually wasn't that is- interested in the guitar, but it was a father-son thing. We'd go to the record store, go have some dinner. Uh, uh, he'd go to the lesson and then we'd go home. And and it kind of went like this for about a year. And I just was like, oh, guitar, looking at the catalogs, looking at the pictures. I, I liked all those red guitars. Gibson was like big into red <laughs> guitars in that era. I said, wow, a wow. red guitar, that's kind of cool. Um, and then the Beatles came out. <laughs> of course. And I saw the Beatles on TV. And I'm like looking at the Beatles and I'm, and I'm going, in my mind, I'm going, oh my God, what is that? And my mom was, of course, you know, my mom was like, why has he got that haircut like that? You know, they were like, they freaked my, They were wigging out because they were like, so they, you know, they didn't even listen to jazz. They, they were solid classical people. And it was like, okay. freaked them out. It freaked me out. And of course, not, it didn't freak them out as much as when I started listening to Jimi Hendrix, but that's another Man, story. <laughs> anyway, I said, wow, I want to play an electric guitar. And my dad said, sure, but first you got to take some classical guitar lessons. So that's how it started. My dad got me, I got, I don't know why he didn't get me a classical guitar, but he got me, I got a Gibson LGO. Wow. Which I was pretty, you know, I was a pretty nice guitar really, you know? And uh, so I started taking lessons, classical guitar lessons with this guy Richard Pick and um, you know, that's it. That's how it all started. And then, you know, I just eventually, uh, I took some lessons for like a year or two. And then, you know, while I was taking lessons, I started, you know, I was starting to now listen to rock and roll, you know, a lot. And eventually I got an electric guitar and the rest, there's a downward slide.
1: <laughs> it's amazing how many people I talk to. From that generation, your generation, where the Beatles was the seminal moment. I mean, I can't, obviously, I wasn't there when that happened, but I can't imagine just like the explosion that it just caused to everybody in the world. I I asked my dad once, How did you not play guitar? Like, I I don't understand. Everybody I talked to, they, they fell in love with music, and my dad equally fits the bill. He loved music, had an enormous record collection. You mentioned Hendrix. He talks about hearing Hendrix for the first time on the radio and it changing his life, but it didn't make him go buy a guitar. He didn't ask for one. He had no interest in being a musician. But it's amazing how far-reaching that, that scope is of, to, to musicians of that generation. It's unreal.
0: I, I, it's really crazy. Like it, was, it was like a game-changer. You know, Pop music – I mean, there was rock and roll – of course I was rock and roll, but it wasn't, it was different. When the Beatles came out, it was a different, whole different kind of thing. And it was, you know, because I was like just becoming a teenager, it's like, you know, it's so important that music you hear when you're a teenager, that's yeah. the stuff, you know, that you carry with you. But yeah, it was like every, it was just changed. It was almost like overnight, everything changed. Everybody was getting guitars. And I'm sure there were like people in factories working over, you know, like 24 hour shifts, putting together, and silver tones and just like oh, it, we can't it, make it them be. fast enough
1: they could they couldn't make them fast enough in fact it was fascinating i was doing research on gibson guitars and why 50s gibsons are so special those bursts and three dot neck three thirty fives and so many of those guitars the wood had been cut down 50 even 100 years earlier before they ended up getting around to making those guitars and then the beatles hit And it was like they had to get any wood they could because they ran out of their stash. And maybe that's not why the guitars didn't get, you know, weren't as good as the ones from the late fifties, early sixties, but the wood changed without question. It didn't have time to sit there and dry for 50 years before they could use it. And it was directly attributable to the Beatles and all of that.
0: Wow. Well, there you go. Supply and demand, right?
1: Yeah. It's crazy. It's great. Okay. So so then you, you take classical lessons when do you get the first electric guitar and what's the first gig scenario for you
0: well the first okay the first guitar was an sg jr and i and the amp was a kalamazoo model too nice it was a pretty good rig although that, you know that's a good that's stay, a solid rig solid rig didn't stay clean very long you know it was like <laughs> You turned it, you know, an SGP with the P90 is pretty powerful, and that the, little amp was like what, two watts or something. Yeah, right. It, uh, so it went, you know, and at the, at that point, it was like, I didn't realize that that was the coolest song ever, you know. So, right. The amp kind of replaced pretty quickly for something that was a little bit cleaner. I'm not, I think I got, like a, Princeton or something like that, you know, a bigger Fender, because uh, mm-hmm. I wanted to be, I wanted to be clean, you know. I didn't know. Everyone was playing clean in those days. And then all of a sudden it was fuzz tones. Our first gig was uh, a battle of the bands at the local JCC, which is the Jewish Community Center. Um, Our drummer's mom drove us. I remember I had a purple Nehru jacket and paisley pants. And the drummer's mom picks me up and she goes, did your mom let you out of the house like that? What are you going to say? It was good. I felt I was styling.
1: I'm sure you were styling. Um, and, what, and were you playing cover tunes? What were you guys playing?
0: We play, I can tell you, I, we played like three songs. Um, we played a song by The Who, So Sad About Us. Uh, we might have played uh, Boris the Spider, also oh, no. by The Who. I mean, we played some Who stuff, although I wasn't, I can't say like a, The Who was my favorite band. Oh, we played uh, You Really Got Me by the kinks Kinks, yeah you
1: know okay so from there what's the progression into becoming like a a working musician when when do you start gigging all the time um you know is it during high school is it after high school when's when's the transition kind of happen?
0: well um you know so i'm picking up the guitar and i'm learning how to play and i i I progress pretty quickly in high school you know they're just you know the guy down the street, Reed Goldstein taught me how to bend strings. Uh, a guy that uh, worked for my dad brought me a bunch of blues records because uh, he heard me listening to all like Cream and, and uh, 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 who else was I listening to? You know, like all these, you know, the Stones and, and he's got, and I thought this guy said, hey, you should listen to this stuff. Like this guy, Muddy Waters is pretty good and B.B. King. Yeah, you know,
1: so and Plus you live in I Chicago. Thought,
0: because <laughs> well, I live in Chicago, I had no idea. You know, literally, right. I had no idea of anything other than like, you know, Shostakovich. <laughs> For a while. Anyway. Right. And then, uh, so what happened was I started playing and I started, I had uh, played in bands in my neighborhood. In, in I grew up in a little, in the suburb of Chicago, literally across the street from Chicago. Um, and when I was in my junior year of high school, a kid in my... A kid in, in my high school uh, approached me about being in his band. He was in a band with a bunch of older guys, you know so I was like, let's say, I might have been 17, 16." And these guys were older, a bunch of older guys, like 18, you know maybe I think there were a couple guys that were 21, and that's a big difference when you're that young, oh yeah, yeah. So he they had this band, and they were a cover band. they played soul music, you know, dance music. And they were actually working. They worked. I never, never, the idea that you could actually go play a gig and get paid for it was like novel. So I, so they, they were getting rid of their guitar player because the guy, he was, he was a good guitar player, but he had just, he didn't have fuzz. No fuzz. <laughs> I had fuzz. I had fuzz face. I had the sound. And the guy who got me in the band knew that I had the sound. I couldn't play with shit, but I had the sound. <laughs> so i got this gig and i started playing with a bunch of older guys when i was about a junior in high school and we played bars in chicago so we played there was at that time in chicago there was a an area called rush street there were a bunch of bars and uh i would play we would play like we started by playing weekends and then all of a sudden that blossomed into playing five or six nights a week and i was still going to high school There was a I was really pretty much a mess. I'm surprised that my parents let me go for it, but I guess they they, they figured well it was better than me just sitting around smoking pot. So, so I we we would, we would we would maybe probably not. We played three we would play like three sets four sets a night and then five sets a night on the weekends and playing nothing but covers. So yeah. I learned and I got to play with some you know guys who were older and better and. They're older and better, maybe not wiser, but older and better than I was as a musician. So they were always kicking my butt. Um, I had to spend the breaks. For the first year, I started spending all my breaks time in usually like at a bar would have a storage room because I was too young to be there. Mm-hmm. And in those days, the musician union would kind of like send guys around to check on the bands. Like this is like, you know, it's like being in Goodfellas. Imagine I was like kind of living in that era. Right. Um, so I got that's kind of how I I learned how to play. I was like on the job training. Uh this band we just played a lot and eventually we got a gig playing a topless review in wow. the Chicago, downtown Chicago hotel. Uh that was an an, an interesting experience. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: different times. Uh That's an education yeah. man.
1: All those gigs, all those hours, all those sets That's and I can relate to like being having to go either outside the club or into like a dressing room, not being allowed in the club unless I was on the stage because I started, yeah, when I was 12 and 13 and it was the same thing. But man, those that's I mean, directly responsible, not 100 percent, but from for like ending up where you end up all those gigs, all those hours, all those sets of playing, learning all that music with guys better than you. I mean, that's that's the best education you could ever get.
0: On the job training absolutely yeah. i i am so grateful that i was able to do that play with you know that's like it, that's a difficult thing to do the, well especially well you can't do it now at all but i mean even yeah. when before the pandemic hit that was you couldn't do that i don't know how you could do that anymore play somewhere and play like that much music every night yep. yeah so yeah and, and, I, and I get it, that question
1: all the time from people about like soloing and stuff and they'll be like, well, where does all that stamina and vocabulary come from? Uh, you know, you soloing all night long and you're not, and it's like, well, yeah, because I used to do that for three hours a night as a kid. And I was the lone soloist in the band and it didn't matter how many people were in the audience, if they were paying attention or not, it, you had to figure out a way to just do the job. And that's, that's where it comes from. Yeah.
0: You just got to do the job.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And also, man, so how good did it feel the first time you did that gig with this working band and they gave you some money at the end of the night, that first time that you get paid?
0: Oh, uh, it was a freak out.
1: I, I, I couldn't even fathom that someone would, would give me money to play guitar. And I used to just shove it in an envelope in my sock drawer and I saved up. And of course, the first thing I ever bought was another guitar, you know, with the money. That's
0: right. Yeah. That's exactly
1: what
0: did. is. I've been, I, basically all I did with that money that I ever made playing in Chicago is buy more guitars yeah. and sell guitar. Like I started trading guitars. The first good guitar that I got, I got a 1957 Esquire from a kid down the street for like 75 bucks. Wow. And then I turned it, I sold it like a, two months later for 150 bucks and I thought I was really smart.
1: Yeah. And you were at the time. But I bet that was a great guitar. Was <laughs> a really good guitar? I wish I had it now. Yeah. Yeah, so so then what? You end up in a band, right? That moves to LA? Is that kind of how it happened?
0: So so what happened was, you know, things kind of evolved quickly. You know, we uh this band that I was in, the cover band started to get it that you know, there were there was there was there was uh two camps in that band one was like hey let's start writing our own music and be we can we we could be our own band like look at chicago or let's sweat and tears you know we had horns it was like there was kind of a formula band that 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 existed back in those days and it was like a band with you know we had a lead singer bass drums good keyboard basically a b3 and a full horn section and that was kind of like the unit and that was like that's what pe- club owners wanted and right uh so that's what we did. Uh, so there are some people in the band were really just happy earning a buck, you know, and mm-hmm. and others were like, hey, let's start writing original music. So um, there is an inverse ratio between the amount of original music you can play in a set and the amount of money you start earning or start <laughs> yes. not earning. So the band started writing original tunes and, and the you know, so we started not being able to uh earn the kind of money that we were making so then they kind of like the whole scene kind of atrophied after a while because there it was like a, a strong urge to be creative among among some of us including me like i was like oh, i want to write tunes you know so and and all of a sudden there was like this is now early 70s in chicago so there's now a scene you know there now there's more of an underground music scene there's coffee houses there's clubs where you could play original music so i so basically um i left that band joined another band that was doing original music um and then that band kind of morphed into another band which uh we pulled one of the guys from the the original band the organ player and we start. we became this band called the eddie boy band and we became right. We did all original music, and we became really popular in Chicago. We were kind of like, we were like a two drummer, two guitar, keyboards, and bass band, and a lot of singers. We had two drummers because, like, well, frankly, like they equaled one decent drummer, you know, together.
1: <laughs> right.
0: Uh, Josh, do you know Josh Leo? He's uh, a Nashville guitarist. Yeah. He played he was a songwriter, producer, played with Jimmy Buffett for many years. Oh, okay. So he yes, was the yes, other yes. guitar player. So we were in that band together and uh so we, we 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 were really popular in Chicago and you know for the time we were making good money actually. We were playing all around the Midwest and uh doing an original thing and we had a we actually had a we were actually put together by a manager. So we were a slightly put together band. We weren't like really like, you know, band of brothers. It was more like gotcha that's we're gonna do this thing you know and uh but eventually we got a record deal with the mca records and we we basically decided hey let we're gonna go to la to record let's move there Mm. so that was kind of not maybe our best move because when we got to la we made the record uh and then there were no gigs out here at the time, you know, it was like, there. Were, like you could play the Starwood, the Whiskey. There were a few places to play, but not like there were in the Midwest. So it was like, all of a sudden we had basically living off the money that we was our advance from the record and uh, playing like way less. But we were here, we we're out here in California trying to, we were trying to make it. Um, and so our record came out, it didn't, it wasn't really well received and, it wasn't really a banner or effort from our band. We, we didn't really have much recording experience. And we got a producer that was, I think, more interested in just getting his paycheck than in really making a great record with us. We did, there were a lot of things, you know. So we didn't make the record that we could have made. So we kind of like, in fact, we pissed off our fans in Chicago. We made a bad record. And uh, uh, so we broke up basically. And so I, was, I stayed out here. I stayed in L.A. I tried to make it as a songwriter for a while. Nothing happened. Uh, I was actually super lucky. I, got, I was really getting broken. I was down to my last bucks, And uh, uh, I found there was this place in, L, in uh, Hollywood called the Musician's Referral Service. And I got a, I got a gig playing guitar with Al Stewart, who was okay. a You're the cat. songwriter. Yeah. I played on that tour i didn 't play on the record, but i I got on his tour right before it his record came out before it was huge, like I was like a kid, and we were like we went out we were going to play like a little mini tour of some clubs in the west coast, and all of a sudden his record comes out and it blew up bang i 'm playing guitar with al Stewart wow. went to, went to England for the first time played the old, I think we played the old great whistle test. I think you can see that awesome. I'm out there. I had, uh, there's, a, there's me playing near the cat with hair and uh, a nice strap. They, they gave me a strap because they wanted me to replicate the sound of the guitar player that was on the record. A guy named Tim Remick, which was basically a strap, a twin, and a dynacomp. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's cool. the sound. That's cool. It so, went out okay.
1: That, yeah, and so that began your journey, I guess, here in L.A. as a working guitar player. Where did where did the uh, when the songs when you I saw it like I know Linda Ronstadt did a song that you wrote, and and then the, you got to tell me the Pointer Sister story. I got to know.
0: Okay, so what happened to me? I'll try to make it brief. Uh, I when I worked with Al Stewart, our opening act was a singer named Wendy Waldman, and she was a California singer songwriter, like you know, around. She was right in that circle of Wendy Wallman, Linda Ronstadt, uh, Carla Bonoff, Andrew Gold—all those people. They were okay, friends. Yeah. So I, she asked me to play on her record after the Al Stewart tour. So I kind of got drafted into her, her band, and while we were, while I was in her band, I met the guys that would later become this band that I had called the Cretones, mm-hmm. and uh, so I up, I started writing more songs. I was like just writing crazy, so I was writing all these songs. Um, we started a band with, with Wendy's backup band called the Cretones, and um, what happened was that our, our uh, hey, what happened to you? I'll be back. Okay, I got to
1: go to the wide view for a second. Give me, one. keep talking.
0: <laughs> okay, so uh, our my friend in the band. His name was Peter Bernstein. His girlfriend was Linda Ronstadt's dog walker. And uh, we, she gave a our demo cassette of the songs that we had had written to Linda, and uh, she liked them. You know, this was like right. This was like 1979. Our band sounded, Mar. You know, like we were like a power pop band. You know, marginally like not as good as, but kind of like the knack and maybe okay. influenced by all the other stuff that was going on at the time. Uh, and she liked my songs. So she, I literally got a call from Peter Asher going, I'm calling for Linda Ronstadt and we would like to know if it's okay if she records your songs for her record coming up. Uh-huh. And I'm like, uh, okay. Uh, so that <laughs> got me started. That was like how I started as a songwriter. So I wrote, I, I, I wrote three songs on Linda Ronstadt's Mad Love album. And then all of a sudden I was like an official songwriter and uh, right. we made a couple of records with my band. Then um, uh, I went off and worked with Peter Frampton for an album and I helped him co-write an album. Uh, and then I, 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 started, I was just like writing all the time. So eventually I got a publishing deal as a staff writer for, uh, it was MCA universal music. And, um, through those guys, Leeds Levy and Rick Shoemaker, I started just writing songs, and we were—I was basically now just writing songs that would be pitched to different people. And I wrote this song, "Automatic," with my friend Brock Walsh, and um, uh, we made a demo of it. And they pitched it to Richard Perry and the Pointer Sisters, and they went, "Yeah, we'll take it." And um, yes. they basically—that's how it worked. You know, you write a song, you you did a demo. The demo is basically the same as the record, in fact, even in the same key. Brock Wallace wrote the mo- the lyrics and most of the melody stuff and I wrote the music and they did it in his key that he sang it in. And, you know, June Pointer said it's really low, but she sang it super low. And I think because it was so low, it kind of was what kind of contributed to making it like, a you know, such a catchy record.
1: Uh-huh. So when you write a song like that and and it kind of, you know, something happens. Does it does it change things overnight
0: for you? Well, uh, you know, it wasn't like that was the first record. Well, it was interesting because like the Linda Ronstadt record was it sold about a million copies. I didn't really have any of the singles on it, but mm-hmm. it was it was good. It was good for my credibility, you know, as a songwriter. And then the stuff I did with Peter Frampton, which was the next project, they didn't sell at all. You know, that was. But it was a great experience. I got to play with Peter for like a couple of years. It was great. But yeah, so when, once I was a staff writer and then we, that did lead to, to more stuff. Like I had more stuff. I had songs covered by, uh, uh, you know, Chicago. I wrote a couple songs with Peter Cetera. Um, there was another Pointer Sisters song. I wrote one for Olivia Newton-John. Uh, you know, it just—it just—it was like a snowball effect. Like all of a sudden, I was just a songwriter and writing songs for other people. I wasn't as driven, like you know, as like Ally, uh, as um, some other people like to have number one hits. I guess if I had focused more on like writing the hits, mm. I and mean, things might have been different. But I was doing great. I, you know, I had like just writing a whole bunch of songs for different artists. Wow. and then I got—I got to. I wrote some stuff. I wrote uh, a couple of songs with Natalie and Brulia for her first record, which took off crazy. And I also yeah. got to be the producer on those tracks, so that was kind of fun. You know, I got to be a producer and a songwriter and and you know, guitar player.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: So I, I was writing a lot of hats.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, but that's a fun. You know, it's great to be. I mean, and quite honestly, it's a hundred percent necessary in this generation of musician to make a living you got to have so many hats on and be as diverse as possible not just in styles of music but in the amount of work you're just able to do and roles you're able to fill
0: there, there are a lot of really capable guys out there now that can do you know guys like you you play you produce you, you do everything sing right you're an artist you're a producer you're a session guy you're whatever you know uh that's just the landscape now you got to be in order to, to survive or th- let's say thrive. I like the word thrive. You got to be able to do a lot of different things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, you know, the, 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 the uh, you know, lightning striking, you know, like where you're, you join a band and next thing you know, it's journey and you're set for life. You make one, you know, one record and that's it. That doesn't happen anymore. It's like, it's not a thing really. Yeah.
0: It's not yeah. a thing. Hey, is that a 24 track?
1: It is a 24-track, yeah. There's actually wow. two of them. And, There's one there and one old. there. <laughs> Dude,
0: old school. I dig it. Um, yeah.
1: I'm turning two into yeah. one
0: right now. Nice. Oh, you're yeah. cannibalizing? Cool.
1: I'm cannibalizing. Um, so th- this one is the working one, and it's about 94% working. It's, it's working. It's this close to being really working.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. Nothing, you know. I love. I work in digital. All that's all I do. You know, I, my oh, whole yeah. world now is on my, my iMac. But uh, you can't really. That sound of tape is the sound of tape, and it's fantastic. Yeah. Just like the sound of vinyl, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: All right. So before we get into the ten questions, you just got to tell me, give me one Ted Green story, at least, or or how you first w- wandered in or met him or whatever. How you how that first initial. Hey.
0: Well, okay, so I got, first of all, got to step back one step. I was, when I was, when I was doing all this songwriting, I was deeply into learning keyboards. Oh. And I was taking lessons, I was taking lessons with a guy in town named Abby Frazier. He was a great, he had been a New York session guy in the NBC radio orchestra. Like he was like, he was the chisnick. He was like he, wow. this guy was an incredible musician. He was always like, "I go for a lesson at seven a.m. he'd have a cigar in his mouth and go, just he'd throw some Brahms in front of me. He goes, you just read the notes and you play, and that's pretty much the lesson. And <laughs> oh, uh, wow. uh, and you know, and then he'd like, you just you, you play good for a guitar player. That's what he would say to me. So I wasn't <laughs> as uh, deeply, I wasn't deeply. Uh, uh, into playing the guitar like as a, as, a, as a study instrument. I was just, I played guitar on my records and I was playing it, but I was kind of trying to learn more on the keyboard. Well, mm-hmm. it, sadly, he passed away. And uh, I started studying again with a different guy on keyboard and it was like, this guy wanted me to start from scratch and it was not, it wasn't, it was not fun. And I was like sitting on my piano bench and I looked over and I had a guitar in the corner of the room and the guitar said to me, it's time for you, Mr. Goldenberg. So I I decided I'm going to get some guitar lessons because I, I hadn't had guitar lessons since I since studied with Richard Pick, really. And um, I had no idea who Ted Green was, not a clue. Mm-hmm. I started like asking around and people kept saying, well, you should just check out this guy, Joe DiOrio. Mm-hmm. And so I call, I found Joe DiOrio and I called him. He's teaching at the, I think it was the Guitar Institute. It might have, it was before it was the Musicians Institute. It was Guitar yeah. Institute. Yeah,
1: didn't
0: I, I I, Yeah, I didn't want to take lessons. I didn't want to be the. Uh, I didn't want to go to class. I didn't want to like you know. I felt a little too old to be like going to school. Mm. Uh, so I called him up and I said, "Hey, you know, how about private lessons?" And the guy, and he lived in like Orange County or something. So he was. Just, he discouraged me from taking lessons with him because he said, "Well, you know, I only teach on Saturdays and it's a far drive. Why don't you look up Ted Green?" So. I had no idea what who Ted Green was. He said, oh yeah, and get, get a copy of Chord Chemistry. So I go down to Baxter Northrop in, in, in Van Nuys and I find this book and there's this guy, he looks kind of like Jerry Garcia on the cover. With, <laughs> yes. with I think it's, a, it's either a Tele, I can't remember the cover. So I think a Tele or a 335, but it had like extra pickups put in in like 16,000 switches on the guitar. Yep, and this that's... is like Manila Brown book. And I open it up and there's like, it's just like nothing but pages of coordinates. I have no idea what's going on here. It's like, this is insane. So I get the book. I can't even make any heads or tails out of it. I call Ted Green up and he's like, he's super nice, He's really, hey Mark, yeah. Um, Well, I'm pretty full up right now. So why don't you call me back in a month? So I called him back in a month. and It was the same thing. "Um, Yes, I don't have any slots right now, uh, but call me back in a month. So like in the the third time is a charm. He says, Oh, yeah, I can see you next Tuesday at 10 30 uh, or something. And he goes, The lessons are $14. And if you can't come, you have to send a sub. That was his rule. Like, if you couldn't come in for a lesson, you couldn't cancel. You'd have to send in somebody. Um, actually, I sent in uh, uh, Jennifer Condos, my wife, a, a few, when we were married to prefer some lessons when I absolutely couldn't make a lesson. <laughs> wow. Really? Um, yeah, I would just say, you know, there was, it just wasn't, you couldn't, like, he was, it was, that, it was his rule. He didn't uh, just want,
1: like, another $14 and to have the hour off. He wanted you to send
0: somebody else. Because he, he figured any somebody would come in and they could learn something, right? Yeah. So I started, you know, so I was like, I go for the first lesson, right? and I at that time I was kind of really kind of getting into Brazilian music so I was like kind of like doing my faux Brazilian thing and I knew a few major seventh chord shapes and some open you know like things that had like you know like like weird pedal tones but I didn't really know what I was doing but I was playing some chords and so he I sit down and he's got like I'm in his apartment it is and it's like there's like did you ever study with Ted at all?
1: No no but I've heard about uh, the apartment but I'm curious to hear your, your description of it i've heard what it looked like
0: yeah so basically it was kind of like the maze of from uh this the shining but it was with books yeah. and there's just like books floor to ceiling books books and guitars and a mound of books and then like uh, two chairs there was a chair for the student and he would sit on the floor mostly and so with the first lesson i went to see him his he was teaching in his front room of his apartment, but he would just change his area. You know, like one time, you'd, you know, you'd go a lesson and be in the bedroom. Uh, he had like all these books, floor to ceiling, VCRs, TVs, it was kind of crazy town. Anyway, super nice. And so he, I sit down and uh, he says, well, can, can you play? He's like in this really soft voice, really gentle, like the soul, like he was like Yoda. Like he had this, he emanated this, this quality, like just like you'd meet him and he was your best friend. Every student, whoever studied with Ted would say, Oh yeah, Ted and I had something special. Like he just had that quality to him. Right, right. He just, he was just a radiant being. And so he says, well play something for me. So I put, I whip out my jazziest, bitchinest Bossa Nova stuff that I could make manifest at the moment and I play it for him and he goes cool folk music (laughs) and I was like yeah can we just start from the beginning so I started so I basically started studying harmony with Ted basically right out of the gate you know we just like went through we didn't use his book he gave me a bunch he gave me sheets you know like most of which you know if, if you're not familiar with Ted Green like most of his work as a stu- as a teacher is available on his website for free. Yeah. yeah. And there's enough there to study for 20 lifetimes. I mean, I don't really understand how this guy was able to write as much as he did. At, at incredible lessons, you know, that, that uh, any mortal person could like take one of these lessons and spend way a lot of time on it. Uh, yeah. He wrote just hundreds and hundreds of lessons and arrangements of tunes. And like, he talked about Baroque harmony. I mean, like the guy was incredible. I I wrote, I wrote, wrote in a, in a, uh, an arrangement of Someone Over the Rainbow, which was just dreadful. I tried to put a chord on every note, tried to play every chord and be a six note chord. It was just horrendous. Right. And I played for him and it was like, you know, he said the, the biggest cut that Ted would ever say to anybody would be like, "Ooh, interesting note choice."
1: <laughs>
0: and uh, so he said that to me after my thing, and then he like started playing uh, "Somewhere Over the Rainbow" back at me. Like he said, "Well, you know, you could do it like in the style of Mozart; it would sound like this, and then Beethoven might maybe be like this, and then like Bill Evans' version would be kind of like this." And he was like playing them, and he'd be modulating, and he'd be like, Ted had the ability to think polyphonically on the guitar, which is you know, playing a, a, a bass line and a melody on a guitar is difficult. You know, to, yeah. and to improvise that is really difficult. And to be able to do more than that, like think in terms of let's say multiple lines, you know, that's just like a that's a a big task. It is. It is for me anyway. Uh,
1: it is. It's for just me a big.
0: Task.
1: Yeah, you know, and then when and I like, listen to them, I can't even. I know, I can hear what's happening because I understand music, but I still can't understand how to possibly pull it off. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah.
0: We're in the same boat, buddy. It's like, I would just go for lessons where he would be talking about the stuff that we were doing and playing something else, like completely random other (laughs) stuff that sounded like Wagner. And I'm like, dude, what do you, he, I, my, my theory is he was channeling, the universe and it, it was ba- basically the universe is feeding him this stuff right mm. because it was effortless that was the other thing was like it appeared to be completely effortless like yeah you
1: know, that video what are you, what you know, are you gonna- where he's at, at the wedding and people are talking around him and talking to him and he never stops playing it's that's how it looks to me like it it doesn't matter what's going on. He could have a conversation about baseball. It seemed like and be playing the you know the most complicated stuff. It was like, yeah, I, that's another world that I don't understand.
0: <laughs> yeah, he was the other level player. Got a brief great Ted Green party story. Do you, Joey Brasler, oh, uh, who is at guitars now, um, used to manage a store called Making Music, and uh, he threw you throw a yearly Christmas party, and all the guitar players he knew would go to his Christmas party and get drunk and have a great time. And one year he hired Ted green to play Christmas tunes. So Ted's kind of set up in a corner. Right. And, and every, there's a lot of people at his party. Right. And as soon as start, Ted started playing the entire party literally just stopped talking and were listening to Ted. Right. And he freaked, like he didn't like to perform. He was not a performer. He was right. a teacher and he would occasionally do gigs, but, he like when he just like announced, please people don't listen. Just talk. Cause it was bugging him. It bugged him that people were listening to him play so that's, intently.
1: That's unbelievable. But I, I guess from afar, I can, I can see that,
0: you know? Yeah.
1: Amazing. Right, he, never, he never,
0: he never, more than $28 for a lesson. That's see. And that's unbelievable.
1: And what year was that, that you took your first lesson from him?
0: Whoa. You know what? I, late you know i that's a good question 80 something late 86 87 88 somewhere around there i studied for eight years then i took a two-year sabbatical which was basically a study thing for me i went he asked me to to, he said you know you should learn all the voicing groups and all the all the inversions of may you know like the seven qualities the you know the most uh common qualities and that took me two years to figure that one out and then i came back and i studied with him a little bit more and then he passed away
1: well it's funny that's the way i am with the chord chemistry book i look at it once a year and i do a page and then i put it away
0: (laughs) you know what it's i think that that book the real gold in that book the chords are great it's great to have all those chords I, i look at it as a reference like that's a thesaurus you know it's like Hey, I got a. I'm doing an arrangement. I need a, a a 13 flat nine chord, and I don't like the ones I got. Or the top note needs to be the ninth or something, yeah. uh, flat nine. And then we'll look it up. But the, the 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 lessons that follow all that mass of chord grids are really great, and they're yeah. just like his other lessons. You know, that's cool. it's like that. That's a book. Ugh. That's a book.
1: Yeah. All right, let's get into the the 10 questions. So number one, when you started learning and playing, what was the first thing that when you got it under your fingers and you learned it, it was like that moment of, I can't believe I figured this out and I'm hooked for life now. You know, like this was the coolest thing ever.
0: Well, the first thing that I learned, well, the first thing that I learned on guitar was my first lesson with uh, uh, Richard Pick. And we were playing classical and the first thing that I learned was how to use my fingers. Like he was into like he used uh you know, the they were called it's a rest stroke, right? Okay. So yeah. I had and I didn't, you know, so I, I, I learned how to do oh
1: That's what I learned
0: and enough you know i that's that was entertaining to me, so I'm saying I either have a low threshold for entertainment
1: it set the hook or, though it was uh, enough to it was enough to set the hook and reel you in
0: <laughs> it was like I could do something it was like, yeah, it was because it was like you're doing something with one hand, you're doing something with the other hand, you're doing it together, and you're making a weird sound. it was cool
1: that's amazing, yeah, yeah i mean i I remember. Getting the guitar, I got the guitar when I was three, but I started wow. when I was six, really. When I was six, I asked for lessons, so they took me to, to lessons, and I, I'm sure the first thing I learned was C major scale or something. I don't know, but I remember playing it just for days on end, and and my parents being annoyed with the fact that, that I would play the same lesson over and over and over again, and we ended up changing teachers after two weeks because it was one of those weird schools that happened back in the '80s, and they tried to get you to buy a, a guitar immediately, a new guitar. Like, oh, his guitar's terrible. You need to spend a few hundred dollars on this guitar and this book, and then so then they found me like a jazz guitar teacher out of the yellow out of you know the back of the newspaper or something after that. But yeah, I, wow. I remember that was enough to to set the hook for me. <laughs> Alright, what was the first solo you ever learned note for note? Or that at least turned you on enough that you wanted to learn it note for note? Uh,
0: the solo from Gloria. <gasps> yeah. Basically because it was the same thing four times. Yeah, yeah. I could figure that one out. And then there yeah, was the other people. but it's amazing. It's amazing. It's yeah. amazing. It's Gloria. Now, yeah. now it, you know, that is, but we learned, because I grew up in Chicago, the version that was a hit was by a band called The Shadows of Night. Oh, and it okay. wasn't them. So It wasn't them. It wasn't them. Yeah. It wasn't them. It was like a cover, a Chicago cover. Wow. Was it the same key? Same key, E. You can, it can only be an E. <laughs> of course. Oh, man. That's
1: a good one. That's a good solo. That, that's amazing, actually. That's a great one. Uh,
0: it's a great solo. It's a great, great song.
1: It is a great song. What's,
0: what's the first thing wow. you play? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Mark. Okay, no, no. That's okay. We don't have to talk about that song anymore because that's, a, that's <laughs> good. Uh, what's the first thing I play?
1: Oh, what's the first thing you play every time you pick up a guitar? Do your hands go somewhere? Mine do. I have like a, a pet thing that I play. It's modulated over the years. It used to always be in E. Now it's always in G. But I pretty much play it every time I pick up a guitar. And certainly anytime I'm checking out a guitar in a store, trying to see if I like this guitar, my hands just do that automatically. So much so that over the years, guys on the road with me, will play it back to me when they turn their up on before I can even do it because they know it's about to come.
0: So I'm wondering if you have
1: anything like that.
0: Well, there's a two-part answer to this question. One is, like, I practice every day. The first thing I do every day after I meditate is practice my guitar. So I have a thing that I warm up with. Okay. But that's not the thing that I play when I go to a guitar store.
1: Yeah, okay. All right, all right. What what do you warm up with?
0: So – uh, i got I got this sheet from mitch holder it's uh, it 's a 24 day thing and it 's basically a combination it 's like you use uh, how do I explain it you have four fingers right one, two, three, and four right yeah. so you do patterns like one, two, three, four and I do that like and i 'll do that maybe i 'll do it across the strings or uh, and then that, I would do that on the first day. And the next day I would do combination one, two, four, three. Oh, okay. So every day I'm doing a kind of permutation and, and with, there are 24 possible combinations of your four fingers. So I do that. It's like my warm up. It's just the way I, I sit and I play with the guitar, either finger style or with the pick. So that's what I do.
1: Okay. And so then if you're that's trying out a guitar, if you're trying to a guitar, what do you do? What's your, what makes it let you know?
0: Oh, man, what lets me know? Usually I'll play some, like, uh, I'll do, like, wide triads. So I might do, you know. Usually I... I don't usually bust into a you know like string bending licks i i'm more like i play chord things but i like i like that's kind of how i kind of get into a guitar is by seeing what they what sounds like when i play three note chords three note wide voices
1: and you're checking the intonation too
0: (laughs) i'm checking the intonation i want to see how it you know just what it feels like for me like i you know everybody's different about guitars like for me if the feel of the neck and the string height are almost more important than like anything else. Like that's the thing that I, if the guitar feels good to me, I can, I can always, I'll always like, this is what I'll do is like if the strings are low and it feels good, I can always go, I can always change the pickup. So whatever. That's kind of how my mind works.
1: Yeah. Oh, I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that. All right. What key style, song, groove, whatever. Do you have like at a running loop in your head? Do you have any sort of improv or something that just runs all the time? I know I'm when I'm even sometimes when I'm talking to people or definitely when I'm driving, when I'm about to go to bed, when I'm cooking, I'm hearing normally a shuffle. I'm always hearing a doon doon and I'm hearing da 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 da. Like I can't help but hear some swinging improvisation at all times. I'm wondering if you have something like that.
0: I don't because I'm always listening to different music. like So I don't have like a one thing that's kind of going on. But I would say that I'm kind of influenced by whatever it is that I'm listening to. So I listen to a, a fair amount of jazz, mm-hmm. like kind of just all sorts of jazz. So, uh, you know, and so whoever I, and I always kind of fall back like I really like listening to Bill Evans. You know, it's just like that way that his thing is just so beautiful, you know? Um, yeah. uh, so I don't really like have a fallback thing, you know, cause I also listen to a lot of, you know, I, for lack of a better terms, ambient music, you know, uh-huh. um, yeah. uh, some electronica. So fortunately, I don't, this is not what I hear. I'm <laughs> you know, Not there, but uh, I don't really have a thing, you know, that's like, I don't have a constant, thing going on in my head I do have voices
1: yeah <laughs> don't we all <laughs> no it's funny sometimes exactly. I, I just have this constant single note improvisation and it's like it runs 24 hours a day and sometimes I'll be laying in bed and I can't fall asleep unless it's like I finish the solo you know what I mean it's really what weird You
0: can't five chord that's for sure
1: yeah yeah exactly <laughs> oh man All right, cool. Good answer. I like that. Um, When did you feel like you started to find your voice on the guitar? Was there a moment when you kind of stumbled onto something and you thought, wait a minute, I have something here. I should go further down this path and develop this further. And it led you to kind of finding your individual voice.
0: You know, when I was young, when I first figured out like, how, bending strings and playing melodically was a big thing. And that was like when I started hearing. It's interesting. One of the guys that really influenced me a lot melodically was George Harrison when he played Sly. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I wanted to bring that quality to my lead playing. Like, no, I didn't want to play like a lot of notes and flurry of riff. I was never. I don't have a brain that kind of like processes real fast stuff. So when I, when I figured out that if I could play bendy things, and this is about the time I was like 19 or 20, that could be melodic and, you know, they could be melodies. Solos could be melodies. They didn't have to be riffs. You know, that was when I started realizing that that's when I kind of found my style. And and really, like even all the stuff with Ted Green and all the harmony, harmony stuff that I know is like, when I want to play like me the most, that's when I kind of bend out some bendies,
1: you know? Uh, and, dude, it's 100% uh, instantly identifiable. I'll never forget hearing you live play the solo to I'm Alive and hearing that solo, and it's like, that that sounds like Mark Goldenberg to me, you know? Interesting.
0: I could give you the story of that solo if you want to hear it. It's one of my most favorites, so, yeah, please. So, I go – I yeah, I got a call from Jackson. Actually, I got a call from Kevin McCormick, who was Jackson's de facto band leader and bass player, and my friend. And they asked, he asked me if I would come down and play on a couple of tracks for that record. Right. And so I came down and I, I had a, my telly and a matchless DC 30. And uh, I can't remember what overdrive I had at the time. It's not a tube screamer. It might've been uh I'm not sure what it was. It was definitely more different, but anyway, it was a pretty simple rig. And I had a Chandler tape, you know, Chandler delay that was kind of like a rack mount.
1: I had that rack mount delay.
0: So anyway, I went down and improvised some solos on Jackson's on that song. Right, I played down. I got this the tone. He was pretty happy with it, and then he said. Know go order, go out in the lounge, order some lunch. I'm gonna comp a solo together. So he comped together the solo. And that took a while, a couple hours, and he finally I come back in and he's got this solo comp together. And it was really good, like it made sense, it was musical. And he said, Can you do this? Can you learn this solo? So then I I I learned the solo. I had to I I can't think I had to transcribe it because it works better for me if i like can just write it out i wrote it out and then he made me play it like the whole afternoon i played that solo over and over and over and over and over wow and he just take 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 of that solo and he wanted it but it was interesting he wanted exactly that solo that it sounded like the comp but he didn't want it he wanted it to sound not studied like i was just playing you know like it just you know like if i had thought of it that way yeah so so finally, like, we, you know, at the end of the day, he says, I think we got it, right? Uh, three days later, he calls me, in. Jackson calls me, in, and he goes, hey, can you come back and redo that solo? I think the amp was a little too tight. <laughs> so I had to go back and redo the whole thing again with the slightly, uh, same amp, but I just like, we turned down the treble. I mean, I don't know why he didn't just like re-EQ it, but yeah, right. it's not for me to so that's, that's yeah. so. Like so, by the time you know, so I I think I I probably will never ever forget that solo because I had to play it so many times before I got on the record.
1: Well, it's such a but, difficult uh, thing to play something that many times and make it feel like you just improvised it right off the the start, you know. And it was already a mix of things you improv to begin with.
0: Exactly, and like it. Uh, to I mean, like it wasn't like what he comped, wasn't like. Like I, it wasn't like weird comping like the solo the begin, my solo that i came up with was not that solo but it wasn't like the, super far off of that it was just like yeah, he wasn't he chopping
1: phrases together he was chopping chunks you know
0: yeah, yeah maybe no he was chopping phrases <laughs> well,
1: that, that solo says so much with so little i mean the way you start that solo with that melody with the bend, but also slides it's like- yeah, when you were describing what you is your voice, it speaks it's like there it is it's like sound it's melodic, it's got bends, it's got slides, uh it tells a story, it's like a man, that whole thing is like a complete performance, it's so great that it happens twice, you know what I mean? it's yeah, exactly, that's it, it got well, you know, it
0: was great, I was playing it was. That solo was really cool. And the, the, the solo on, uh, uh, I played on Sky Blue and Black on that record. Also, you know, those, probably some of the best stuff I've ever done. And it was because it was pretty, it was, at least it started out spontaneously. I didn't, the process on that song was not so much because we dialed in the tone. So, but he did kind of like, he liked making comps and then kind of like seeing if you could top the comp, you know. Uh, get it? That's cool. That's cool. Well, man, that's
1: a per- profound influence on me, that solo. When I, I mean, I, my parents were huge Jackson Brown fans, and I saw them many times as a kid. But I think that was the first record that came out in my – I was past my childhood and into, like, my formative teenage years as a player. So that record always stands out to me. Plus, I think it's just incredibly strong. Every song on the record is super strong. Um, and But, yeah, that solo always stood out dramatically to me
0: that was a big record I mean like that was like almost like Jackson returning to yeah. mm-hmm. his sound roots so like you know he'd yeah. kind of gone through like all the like everybody you know he went through the 80s with the snare drum with too much reverb and the really yeah. like you can make the mm-hmm. snare drum louder we mm-hmm. need more gated reverb on that snare you know I just everybody went through that yeah and then mm-hmm. uh, but it was kind of a return to a more natural sound and and yeah, he had just collected up incredible songs. All those songs are just great songs. And That's I was great. so fortunate to be like I got on that record, played a couple of things, and they asked me to go on tour with them, and it was like, "Hey, you want to go on tour to Spain for a couple of weeks?" And I ended up being there for like 15 years, so that was pretty good.
1: That's pretty great. Oh man. Well, I love it. All right. Number six: what do you okay. consider your biggest weakness on the guitar? I'll tell you mine, it's like sight-reading acoustic guitar, like not finger-picking necessarily, but intricate, like arpeggiated acoustic guitar passages under the microscope in the studio. That's far and away my, my kryptonite. Like I'm scared in that situation.
0: I can't play fast. <laughs> I just can't play fast. I mean, I tense if if I think I'm going to have to play fast, I tense up and then I definitely can't play fast. I can't seem to just do that thing where my fingers get ahead of my brain. Okay. I've never been, I just can't do it. And, and I, I've been on some sessions where like all of a sudden they go, well, now you need to play something fast. I'm like, you got, you know, you called the wrong guy for that. Cause like I'm That's slow, true. you know, I could do slow. Like whole notes, whole notes I got, but right. having to play fast, I read pretty good. You know, I, you know, my, I played the, before I played the guitar, I played the French horn. So I could, you know, there was a lot of yeah. reading involved. And I played the piano. So I'm not, reading stuff doesn't scare, scare me too much, you know. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, if I have to play, if I have to play, I just don't, you know, like if I have to be like really in that kind of like right frame of mind and everything lining up and the right guitar for me to yeah. like pull off a decent fast. But I can't, I can't shred. I cannot shred to save my life
1: well it hasn't held you back
0: <laughs> you know thank god because I think my shred shredtastic days are behind me anyway so
1: right all right who who's a huge influence on you that I think people would be surprised to hear
0: wow uh Deepak Chopra okay all right you know He's not, you know. I don't know what kind of music he listens to, but uh, I don't either. (laughs) uh, uh, I started meditating a few years ago, and now I'm definitely I'm a a serious meditator, uh, which is could be just I'm, you know, I could be actually napping, but people think I'm meditating. (laughs) Uh, But but his his view, his uh, approach to meditation and uh inner peace has been a big huge influence on me so i would say yeah deepak chopra not much of a guitar player from what i understand but (laughs) you know but it brings up a
1: good point how important sometimes non-musical things are as an influence on our music or on us as people as, as musicians and 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 as improvisers too like you know uh so yeah like it stands to reason that if you're in a better place personally if you're calmer you're more relaxed you're going to play better you know so anything that contributes to putting you in the right headspace is going to make you a better musician or whatever it is you have to do in your life
0: exactly i'm not i'm not promoting kale particularly because uh uh i don't personally like kale but i mean it's really true like if you it playing, playing an instrument is a physical act. You know, you play, you just, you know, even if you're just sitting in your chair all the time playing guitar, you're using your body. So, you know, if you take good care of your body, you will, by a theory, this is just a theory. You know, I think you're, you will play better. You'll feel better. If you feel better, you're going to play better. You're going to feel like you're playing better.
1: anyway. There you go. If you feel better, you are better. <laughs> That's right. All right.
0: A circle has corners. Yeah.
1: <laughs> All right, number 8. Would you rather have a great guitar and a shitty amp or vice versa? A shitty guitar and a great amp?
0: I'd rather have the great
1: guitar. Oh, okay. So we disagree on this one. Okay.
0: So I it's a bad choice, but here's what I think. <laughs> If, you, if you've got a great guitar and it's inspiring you to play, like for me, guitar playing is really tactile. Like I, the touch of the guitar, like, you know, what it feels like, the sound it makes acoustically, that's it for me. So, yeah, I don't want to have a shitty amp. Can I, <laughs> right. can but I, if, can, if can if you had have that? Yeah. If I had to choose, I'd still think I'd pick the guitar, although I can see why. I completely see why you would say, well, if you got a shitty guitar, you got a good amp, at least you're going to get hurt, right?
1: Well, yeah, it's not even just get hurt. I just know me personally. Um, If you give me any piece of junk guitar, but I can play through my rig or through an amp that I'm comfortable with, I'll be much more comfortable and in the zone and possible to give a good performance than if I have my guitar, but then you plug me into a crate with no headroom and some digital reverb. And it'll be better the other way. For some reason, I just know that works for me personally.
0: You know, I think there's a lot that, you know, I I'm not going to change my answer because I'm going to go with it, but I remember on, we played it. We went to Cuba with Jackson Brown and we actually like kind of did a concert mini concert and the guitar amp that they had was a PV mm-hmm. and the, but it had corroded and all the knobs were stuck. You couldn't move them and they were stuck in ass their ass yeah. position like nothing yeah. I, I i was i had brought an overdrive pedal because i but it was definitely the worst sounding amp i'd ever played through in my life and if i, if I hadn't brought that pedal with me i would have been sung wow
1: wow so
0: you, yeah, everybody's I, had I, a different I, answer it's been
1: split 50 50 this answer so it's been interesting
0: okay yeah well i can see it i can see the other side of it, absolutely mm. okay next i'm ready all right what keeps you
1: motivated to, to be better all the time? What keeps you wanting to work on new stuff, be a better musician tomorrow than you are today? What, what keeps, keeps the
0: fire burning? Um, mutate or die. That's my motto. <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. You know what, Mike? Okay, let's talk about heroes. You know, guys like B.B. King or, you know, uh, Vladimir Horowitz, Anybody who's a musician keeps getting better until they're one day they just don't wake up, you know. But if, and that's so, I I, I look at a model as a musician is a constantly evolving creation. And you want to get better. I want to get better at playing the guitar. I want to learn more harmony. I want to get better at playing the keyboards. I want to be better at recording. You know, I don't, so I am motivated to practice every day because I want to get better. Did that yeah, same. End? Did
1: I miss up? Some- no, no, it's right? the same. It's the same, it's the same for me. And it was funny, you know. I'm a huge Stevie Wonder fan, I guess, like everybody else in the whole world. And I remember realizing along the way, like I was complaining one time about his current state of output and the sounds even that he uses, and like, why is he using that new keyboard? Sounds like junk. Where's Where's his roads And where's his Clav? And you know, and this and that. And my friend said to me, Josh, man, he's still pushing forward every day. You may not like it, but to him, he wants to use the newest shit. He wants to learn everything that's new. He's pushing himself forward. So uh, it made me realize that that's what's more important. But it also made me realize it doesn't mean everybody's going to like it, especially if you're a huge success and you keep moving forward and they want you to stay in this one little area. But yeah, it was interesting to kind of come to that realization.
0: Yeah, you want, you know what, I, uh, Jackson Brown is a great example. The guy's still, you know, he's in his 70s now. He's writing songs, he makes records. He's, but not everybody likes the stuff that he does now. And, you know, I mean, and he does, you know, he, it's not like he's doing anything radically different. But you go, when I, even when I played with him, whenever we, like, the new songs would come out from a record, that's when people would go to the bathroom or go buy beer. You know, it's just yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you're an artist, people want to hear your old shit. That's kind of the, yeah. The, the, the caveat, you know. But
1: Sabbath. to be a true artist, though, that can't even be a thought in your mind. You're just pushing forward at all times.
0: I think real artists don't think about what other people think about what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, they, exactly. You're just pushing forward. What, what's exciting for you? What's that discovery? What's yeah. that new sound? What's that new song? You know, that's, like, that's what you care about more than. I mean, if you care about what your fans think, then you're sunk, right? Yep. Because yeah. they don't know.
1: All right, number 10. Uh, Where do you want to be in five years? Is there something you want to be doing better or a goal that you have that you're pushing towards right now at the moment that you want to have reached?
0: Wow. Well, first of all, I'd like to be here in five years. Let's start with that.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, that goes without saying.
0: I'd like to be able to, like – Goes, I'd like to be in five years. I hope I'll be, I'll have spent a few years being able to hang out with my friends again, yeah. Yeah. you know, and be able yeah, to right. like give people hugs. You know, I'm tired yeah. of hugging myself, although I see <laughs> my kids. You know, we, we have kind of a small bubble, but you know, I want, I look forward to this thing being over. And uh, I want to be, uh, what am I working on? Well, musically, in five years, I'd like to be really. You know, I've been, because of the pandemic, I've been practicing a lot. So I work on, I'm trying to keep my guitar chop up. I'm working also playing, kind of gotten back into playing piano again. Oh, okay. So I practice both of those things every day and I'm writing a lot of music. So in five years, I'd like to be doing the same, like kind of just five years better, you know, writing, practicing, meditating, cooking.
1: Yeah. Napping. Just keeping on, keep keeping on, I guess. Keep keep the ball rolling.
0: Yeah, it is. Keep the ball because I don't really have much that's different. Uh, like I'm doing, I'm happy, like I'm doing what I like to do, and uh, so I'd like to be doing that for a few more years. Maybe get a better car.
1: <laughs> well, there you go, man. That's that's a sign of contentment. Yeah. All right, well, Mark, thank you. And for uh, for members, we're gonna end the video now, but there's gonna be a little little segment, the turn two segment, uh, where we're going to teach you two licks, but thank you, Mark for, for being here and for even just doing this dude, you're, you're a hero of mine and an incredible musician. And, uh, it's been really enjoyable for me.
0: Well, thank you so much. You are like one of the God, you are the guitar God of your generation, you know? (laughs) Oh, come on, man. Come on. (laughs) No, you are like a killer, like you're a killer guitar player. Like you are really a guitar player's guitar player. When I hear you play, I go like, holy shit oh, well, and and you don't do the with me. like i play nines you know i'm a baby you got like 42s on your ie or whatever that <laughs> is I mean, it's like what the heck dude what's been funny. i don't know what do you do
1: it's a uh, 13 to
0: 58. i don't even I and mean, you're bending strings i don't know how i you, you know yeah you probably can cut through a wall with no problem it's so, like Cobra Kai or something,
1: you know? <laughs> yeah, we've been watching that, too.
0: <laughs> oh, I man. finished it. Oh, my God. Man. I've been watching it with my son. Uh, yeah, same. Yeah, same
1: me and my son are watching it. <laughs>
0: the best. Oh, okay. Uh, well, all right. Thank you so much. Thank you for me.
1: All right. Thank you, everybody.
0: And members, we'll be right back.